0: Welcome to the Wealth Edit Podcast, a place where talking about finances is only polite. We talk to women and hear the stories behind how they've built their beautiful lives, whether that be inside or outside the home. Join us every week as we talk ambition, determination, and success with some of the most interesting, powerful women in the Southeast and beyond.
1: Hey, everyone. We have Lydia Finette with us. She is global managing partner of Christie's and an auctioneer. And how I was introduced to her is through her book, which is called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. And um, it just, I was very taken and I put this on Instagram stories because I now give that book to everyone that's going to college. Any young woman that I can you know send it to I do because it was so our story of women just you know not negotiating for ourselves kind of feeling like oh wow I'm so lucky to be at the table so anyway I'm just so taken that you are here and I'm just so grateful that you're willing to chat with our community you can um definitely use the chat box to ask any questions we do hope it's conversational right that's one of the best things about the wealth edit is that we have this tight community of women who are just figuring it out together so definitely make this conversational but Lydia just to start will you just kind of share your story
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I'm so excited to be here. And thank you, Emily, so much for having me. I grew up in Louisiana. So the opportunity to speak with Southern women, also about money, is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I work for Christie's Auction House. I've been at the company for two decades now. And as Emily said at the beginning, I also wrote a book, which I will continue to put up here so you guys can all see it in case you didn't have it. It's hot pink. It looks good on any bookshelf. Um, it's called "The Most Powerful Woman in the Room" is you, and it really talks about my journey coming into my own power and really feeling like I could own my life and own what I wanted to do with my life. And this message is really learned over twenty years of working in the same industry and living in New York City, having three children. You know, I'm sure a lot of the things here put yourself in a different city are very relatable. But I was excited to come on here and really share my story with you so in hopes that it would inspire you guys to keep driving and keep living the life you want to live. Thank you so much. That's so great. Well, tell us sort of,
1: give give us a, a quick, if we haven't read the book, and I don't want to give it all away, but like, tell us kind of the things that you saw growing up at Christie's that really like shaped the way you thought about how you were going to spend
0: your life kind of messaging to to young women? Well, it's interesting because when I first started working at Christie's, I was 21. I'd interned there the summer before, and I should back this all up by saying, you know, this was not something that I knew anything about. I didn't grow up in a family that collected art. I wasn't familiar with the art and auction world. It was something I'd read a magazine article about when I was in college. And that moment of reading this article about this glamorous world, this art filled world just really captivated my imagination and to me it felt like the place that I wanted to work and so really the next couple of years were me trying to figure out a way in and I detailed the first chapter of my book is talking about how I got an internship at Christie's in New York City and how the internship program was full and how I used just basically two straight weeks of calling and a question that I've been asking over and over again sort of reshaping it to finally score this internship. And when I was working there, I would say the first decade, I never really thought about my job as a career. I really went in there with this understanding that I was going to work there and it was just sort of fun. And I didn't really need to, you know, it was like sugar bowl money, right? I was making a little bit of money. I wasn't really making a ton of money. My parents kind of said after college, like you're on your own, figure out, you know, figure out the life you want because we paid for education. And now it's up to you to sort of, create the life you want and so for me that at the time in my early 20s I was living in a fifth floor walk up with my best friend we were having an absolute blast I was making no money at Christie's I never thought about negotiating for a raise or any kind of salary increase because it wasn't something that we ever talked about in my family you know I don't know if you guys grew up with parents who actively talk to you about money, but it was just not something that we ever discussed. And that really shaped my first decade at Christie's. And again, going back to the book, I talk in the third chapter about this moment when I realized I was making a third, not a half, a third of what other people in the, the industry were making. And it was a watershed moment for me where I learned that I need to constantly be asking, constantly challenging what I'm making because otherwise you never get anything else. No one ever hands you money and says, like, just so glad you showed up for work and I've decided to give you a raise. They give you a raise when you have actively had that conversation and pushed that conversation. And so much of that is confidence and self-worth. And ultimately, I think when you really realize that, you feel very powerful because you realize that you control the destiny that you want and it's not really up to anyone else. Yeah, that's a
1: good word. And so how did you, when did the shift happen? Because I do see that with a lot. We have a lot of interns that work with us at the Wealth Edit, like bright, young men and women who come through and some of them are on the call today. And so how did you shift from it being like a job to a career? How did you, you know, did you just keep going? It was kind of fun to have the lifestyle that you wanted in New York or what, what was sort of the
0: big shift there? Well, I think there were a couple of conversations that I can really point back to. One of them I remember thinking that I, it was one of, again, those moments in my life where I thought there's a reason that I'm hearing this. There's a reason that I'm hearing this now. I was sitting in a round table and there were 10 of us in in the round table. And at that point I was working in the special events department and I was literally working every single day except for two weeks in August, Monday through Sunday, sometimes 10 to 12 hours 16 hour days and i was making enough money basically to eat cocktails and hors d'oeuvre and then go downtown and try to get a free drink from someone at the bar I, it was most of my rent most of my money was going to rent it was just sort of like this again very fun very new york lifestyle but at the same time there was nothing about saving or thinking about what ultimately my money was going to do or how i was going to grow it over time and so there was uh, this round table where they were kind of asking us all these questions about, you know, what we thought about our job and, and what we were doing on a daily basis. And I remember saying, you know, I just find it really frustrating because I work so much and no one really seems to care that I work so much, even though it doesn't seem like I'm doing a job that's commiserate with the amount that I'm getting paid. And there was a woman who was pretty senior in the company at that point, And she said, well, you work in events. And when you work in a support department, people typically don't think about giving raises because you're just taking money from the bottom line. That's interesting. I remember thinking, okay, so I actually need to make money. Like I need to make money for this company. And maybe then people will start to look at me differently. I'm not taking money, I'm making money. And so when I wrote up the business plan for the department that I've run for Christie's for the past decade, really the core of the department was ensuring that we were covering all of the costs of the department and then making a profit. So at the time I was running events and I just got all of the events sponsored. And then once the events were sponsored, I started making enough money to pay for my entire salary and the salary of everyone who worked on my team. And that time, and that way, every time a recession came, we were sort of protected because even though we were a support department, we weren't taking any money from the bottom line and we were covering costs. So Ultimately, the strategic partnerships department that I started now makes a lot of money for the company. And that's been, again, a great resource because when things are going wrong, I can always point back to the bottom line and say, yes, but we're a profit center for the company. And I yeah. said this to Emily before, I live in Manhattan. so please excuse the ambient New York City sirens and fire trucks and occasional screaming on the street. You never really know what you're going to get here right now. But um, anyway, so that was a little fire truck passing by.
1: <laughs> no, I like that. You know, it's interesting because I've always thought I'm in financial services and I've, you know, built it and Somerset. And um, I feel like what really insulated from like in my career is the fact that I was always revenue generating Mm -hmm. it's different though for you right so like for me I was building and like people everybody I brought on as a client was sort of like insulating me from the male dominance that I was feeling like in all of the different ways throughout Mm -hmm. my career it was almost like a little force field around me Mm -hmm. but for you you've done it in a different way but still is equally as impactful you don't have to be Going out and like acquiring private clients, you can make anything profitable for any company, like you did with sponsorships. I mean, it's it's a really interesting and I think important shift. Um, and again, that skill for uh, you know asking for money, asking for sponsorships, uh, you know, really contributing in that way to a company, whether you're working at a big company or you're starting a company, um, that's not a skill that we're taught as women.
0: And I think one of the things, and you sort of touched on this as well, and I I think I would say this to everybody who's watching this right now, one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about in life is how to monetize opportunities. It's just, if I see a white space, I think about a way to monetize it. And I'll give you an example. So when, and Krista Cotton's on here, because she came to one of my master classes. but basically last summer when the world was imploding and no one knew what was going on, um, to me, I was getting this sort of influx of DMs on Instagram asking me about coaching. Would you be interested in coaching on public speaking? You know, I'm at home all the time. I'd be very interested, here's the noise again. Um, I'd be very interested in talking about sales or negotiations, public speaking or networking. Would you ever think about doing coaching? And at the time, you know, I was working full time and I just kept thinking like, I don't really have time to do any kind of coaching or anything like that. And then of course, if if you're asked enough times you have to start thinking, okay, there's a white space here. And when there, whenever there's a white space, there's an opportunity to monetize that white space. And so I just last August got online on Instagram, which if you're not following me, I hope you will. I hope you'll be part of my community, like come, enjoy, comment, DM. It's like my favorite thing in the world. Um, but one of the things that I realized was that if I put a group together of people with this very specific question, I could then Talk, talk to them about it openly for an hour, hour and a half, and I could put a price tag on that. And who knew if people would pay, but you might as well try, right? So in August, I went on Instagram and literally launched a masterclass series. And I did four different masterclasses, one in sales, negotiation, public speaking and networking every Thursday at four o'clock in the afternoon. And the first one sold out in literally under two hours. I capped it at 25 seats and I put the price point of $200 on it, which was steep, very expensive, two hour, hour, hour and a half. But I also realized like pride is the only thing that really keeps you from pricing. And if you price too high, then you can always lower your price. Everyone knows that. But you don't want to go out with the lowest price. And so when I hit that and people showed up, I realized that there was an opportunity. And so I really tried to play that out and I've continued the masterclass series. I'm doing one on writing and selling a book because I just sold my second book. Um, So again, I consider myself an expert in the field. I've written and sold two books. So might as well do a masterclass and sort of open up another avenue for coaching or for any of those things. And my point in telling you that is, you know, people often think of, especially women, I think we think our time is so volunteer worthy, like Mm -hmm. let's volunteer all of our time always you should definitely volunteer. Absolutely. But don't think that you only have to volunteer. I volunteer a ton of time, but I also monetize my time because my time is important. I have three kids. Those are my priority and everything against that. I'm not volunteering it on my own, then I'm monetizing it. And that's the way I really see the world. That's a good word.
1: And how are you, I know your girl or your kids are younger, um, but how do you kind of talk to them? How are you sort of thinking about imputing these skills that you've learned in
0: your career to your
1: children, male and female?
0: Oh, I think it's so important. Again, going back to my parents and just the absence of any discussion about finances, good or bad in our house. Like I think it's a very important thing for children to understand that things, objects cost money and money does not grow on trees, right? There is a way to create wealth, but there's also a way to spend it all. So really at a very early age with my children, we talk very openly about the fact that mommy and daddy both work and if we're doing things that mommy loves going to work mommy goes to work so that we can do these things that we want to do right mm-hmm. that that is a time value proposition mm-hmm. and on top of that anytime we are you know if they lose something that you know let's say I want a new scooter I want let's talk about what that costs mm-hmm. and what we could do for you to get that scooter what does that take do you need to be doing all of your chores for an entire month like you need to think about like what time it takes to get something that you really, really want. And I'm not saying I'm perfect in this regard, but I promise you, my children absolutely understand that a dollar will buy you a pack of gum, a dollar will buy you a soda. And those are treats that, you know, if you've done everything you get and you get that dollar, then you wanna spend your money like that, you can do that. You could also save that money and that could be looked at differently. So just really talking to them in a light and very practical way, I think is the best way to do it because it gives them the understanding money isn't something that you just want to spend 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 that in fact you want to save it and then ultimately we'll cover investments but we'll wait until they're 10 for that yeah (laughs) and
1: so that's what emily and i talk about all the time is you know we say with our girls because you know she's got two daughters i have three daughters and you know we say okay yeah we could have this thing like whatever it is at target Mm -hmm. or like we've also been talking about saving for this trip so and then it's as soon as you like give kids this or that, they typically pick the cooler, bigger thing, you know, but that's just, we try to do those little things. And I think it makes a big difference. Um, it was interesting. We had kind of going back to negotiating, we had an HR director for, so for any members who have not been, um, have not listened to that session, it was just like kind of the fundamentals of HR, which I thought we were gonna talk about. And we did a little bit like, okay, make sure you sign up for your 401k. Make sure you do this, that, and the other. But what was really interesting is she said 0% of women negotiate on the front end. Like none. She said 100% of men do. When they come in, you tell them that they're going to make $50,000. They say, can I have 75 for this reason or that? She's like, you're pretty much guaranteed to get a 10 to 15% above what you're asking only because, or what they're asking, only because- you're their top candidate. You already know that they've offered you the job for them to find somebody else is gonna be a pain. She said, you're pretty much guaranteed it just to ask for 10 to 15% more. And I just thought it was so interesting, like why she said hardly any women, I'd, I'd basically say zero. And I just think that's, do you know what, why do you think that is?
0: I think in a way we're conditioned to think that, or we're taught, we're conditioned, we're told that if you are a squeaky wheel, you're a problem and you never want to be a problem, right? Yeah. You don't want to be the person who's greedy, who's asking for more. But the bottom line is, and she's 100% right, You know, when people say like, go in and ask for 10% more, I'm like, go in and ask for 30. At the end of the yeah. day, you get 10%. You ask for 10%, you're going to get 5%, right? So, so yes, nobody really likes the feeling of asking for so much money, but at the same time, what's the alternative?
1: Yeah. Like At the end of
0: the day, if you ask for nothing, you will get nothing. You will get exactly what is in front of you. And if you ask for 10%, you'll probably get five. But if you yeah. ask for 30, they're going to be like, wow, all right, I guess we'll give her the full 10%, right? right. Because that's what negotiation is about. It's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. It's actually kind of fun if you really think about it. And especially if you're in a position where you already have the job, like go for broke. At that point, who yeah. cares? You know, the job is yours. So if they say no, you still have the job. If they say yes, then you have the job plus plus. And that's what yeah. you have to do. And I think you're right. I mean, I had a, I had a conversation with a woman who works in HR once who told me that every time a woman comes in, she'll say, what are your salary requirements? And the woman hedges around the conversation. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I um, really I, it, like can't even get the words out And after she told me that, because I feel like when I go in to negotiate for partnerships at Christie's, it's like one of those conversations that it's always like dancing around the issue of money. So I've learned to almost tackle it for like face face on every single time. And I'll say something like, and let's talk about everybody's least favorite topic except for mine, which is money. (laughs) And I'm gonna tell you exactly what this is worth and whether or not that works in your budget. I wanna let you know what my expectation would be. It may not be that it works right now. It may be that it does, but here's the number. And I just, I sort of float into it. I float out of it. I never make it contentious. To me, it is not contentious. I say it's like in an auction, if there's an underbidder and a bidder, I'm not going to, you know, yell at the underbidder for not being able to bid that last night. You compliment them, you thank them for coming, and then you give it to the the highest bidder. So I just feel like that's really the best way to approach any kind of negotiation or especially like walking into an HR department.
1: might as well just ask
0: you may as well just ask
1: well and it's really interesting because emily said so emily lost her husband we we talked about that on here and how when she was reentering the workplace she said and this is why i think it's so important for women to just go ahead and be good with money or at least try to grab those skills right now when you're not in a in sort of like a point that maybe could be considered a crisis or stressful um because she said she had a financial planner that worked through with her, like, okay, this is what you can do if you want to maintain your lifestyle. Like, this is how much you need to make. And then she went in to every single place that offered her a job and said, I need to make at least this. And they all offered her that or more because she really had the foundation and confidence to say, you know, I need this much. Like, we've worked it out with our family. Like, this is what I got to do. And everybody respects that they just do. I mean, this is a corporate, I think sometimes when I think like, Oh, we'll take it personally, you know, we're, we're mainly from the South and like being polite is such a, of high value here. And we think it's impolite when really it's just, it's, it's considerate to whoever you're going to be working for, for you to have that information. Um, Or if you're starting a business to really know the skills you need to be able to do it successfully so people feel it's legitimate from the beginning. You know, there's a lot of accidental business centers. You know, we are an accidental may- online media company and we thought we were going to be in person and then COVID hit. So, like, things happen, but it just, you know, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting. So,
0: and I agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that people often think, especially as it pertains to money and business, is that it's emotional women get so emotional around money. Oh, they don't like me. That's not where they're at the end of the day. You can be as emotional as you want. I've worked for a company for 20 years and the end of the day, I love the company I work for, but I am under no pretense that this is my family. I think for the first decade that I worked there, Mm -hmm. I thought of them as my family. And then when I realized I was getting paid a third of what I was supposed to get paid, I realized that actually at the end of the day, I'm a line item on a budget. Mm -hmm. And if there's a new CEO or someone else comes in and they don't like me, like they can fire me. So why wouldn't I negotiate? Like, why yeah. wouldn't I request? This is not emotional, it's business. And even if they decide that they don't wanna give me that or they don't feel that I am worth that, at least I've asked the question and I know the answer. And yeah. again, it doesn't always feel great. I'm not saying it feels great if you don't get what you want, but at the same time, at least you know. And that yeah. gives you education to go out and look for another job if you need to.
1: Clarity is kindness. So just kind of knowing what you're, what you feel like you're worth, what you feel like you're contributing, um, will really get you unstuck too. We, we say that, um, you know, the opposite of confidence is just kind of feeling stuck. And the way to get unstuck is just to contribute, like to, and contributing could look like so many things, right? Like it could look like just figuring out what you already need to know to do your job better or to negotiate for yourself or to negotiate for your child at school, whatever it might be, can, it can take on so many forms. Now, I want to ask you, because this is one that I, we hear a lot too. Oh, I'm terrible at public speaking. I could
0: never be a public speaker.
1: I could never do it. Tell, tell us what you think about that.
0: Well, it's my favorite thing to do. So it's very difficult for me to come at that question with anything other than like, how can you not enjoy this? Um, no, I fully get it. Public speaking is, I think they say it's the scariest thing for most people, only second only to death. And in some cases, it actually is more frightening for people. I certainly see that my dad is a trial lawyer, and he loves public speaking. And for my mom, it would put her in bed for two days with a migraine headache if we told her that she had to give any kind of speech. So I fully see both sides of it. I think that public speaking for me is just the ultimate rush. I think it is so fun. I think it is one of those skills that if you really spend time developing in it, and you become good at public speaking, will carry over. Into every aspect of your life. You know, public speaking for me, when Zoom hit, you know, I was not familiar with being on camera. I usually speak in person. It was a completely different skill set. But ultimately, what I realized is public speaking on camera is the same as public speaking in person. You just have to bring a lot of personality to the table and you have to relax into your natural self. So yeah. I said to people, like, you know, people are always like, what is your biggest public speaking tip? Remember that the audience wants you to succeed. Like, um, more than anything, anything that you think, the audience does not want you to fail. So if you are a nervous public speaker, feel comfortable telling people. I'm really sorry, guys. I'm a terrible public speaker. This is literally making me feel sick. People love the person who comes on stage and wants them to help. It gives the audience a reason for being there. They will cheer you on. They will cry with you. Whatever you need, they're there for you. And then the other thing I would say too is remember the part that people hate the most about public speaking, which is that right before they get up there, like all of the adrenaline starts to rush in. People always are like, oh, I feel so sick. I feel so shaky. Try to flip your thinking. That's energy. And if you take that energy onto the stage with you, you're gonna have a great performance. So just always remember that all of that adrenaline that comes flooding in, like. You know, use your body. I bounce on my heels before I go on stage because you kind of need to transfer that energy somewhere. But I think to myself, like, all right, here we go. Here we go. We're going, it's happening. And then I walk out on stage with all of that energy and like really bring it in a big way. And that comes from confidence. And it comes from feeling that you're going to own that stage and not being scared of all that adrenaline that's coming in.
1: Yeah. So how is like tell us, did a, flip, did a flip kind of switch for you or switch flip for you uh, in public speaking or is it like, it's just, you've always
0: liked it? You know, I was an auctioneer. I had tried out to be an auctioneer when I was very young. I tried out when I was 24 and I was so much younger than the rest of the auctioneers that, that they sort of said to me, listen, we're gonna just send you out to start taking auctions because we don't really know what to do with you. But like, you definitely have some kind of stage presence because I didn't feel comfortable in my public, ski, public speaking skills, and because I didn't feel comfortable even frankly myself at that point, I would get on stage and do exactly what I had seen all the older male auctioneers do, which was basically sell charity auction lots, which are you know puppies or houses in Mexico, the way that they would sell Picassos. So I was like super stiff and formal. I always wore a black suit. I really came at it from a very specific angle. And what I realized over time was that I was on stage and if I presented as myself and walked onto that stage as like a young woman, instead of trying to fit into this box that I thought that I was supposed to fit into, I would just have a lot more fun with it. And so it was sort of an evolution for me. I mean, I probably took 500 auctions where they were very mediocre and I felt very uncomfortable and the audience wasn't really paying attention. And they were a little soul crushing. I would say I took about 500 (laughs) soul crushing auctions, but it turns out that it was worth it because when I had that flip switch moment, I was on stage and started talking to the audience. Like I would be talking to you or a group of friends. I suddenly realized that that was a completely different way of doing things. And if I started doing it like that, it might be more enjoyable not only for me but also for the audience.
1: Yes, and it's more you. I mean, I, I have kind of like a bubbly personality, so I should probably be bubbly if I'm going to be talking on the internet. It's just who I am. Where you know, it, Emily has a different personality than me. I'm like, you are so impactful when you know, like when she's in her full self. Uh, she she doesn't like this stuff as much as I do so but she's great <laughs> she she's awesome at it I'd say she's twice as good as I am
0: um so, <laughs>
1: anyway, that would what, be hard <laughs> what um how can we support you we are a community that is all about women supporting other women in their ventures so what what can we do tell us how we can help or I know we'd love to join your Instagram community I'm all I'm already on there and it's really fun to watch
0: what well, you're doing and um, you
1: work can you oh go ahead sorry Yeah what were you gonna say I was gonna say, and tell us a little bit about your second book if you can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess the biggest way to support would be like spread the word about this. Um, That's my favorite thing. And then, yeah, so my second book is called The Most Confident Woman in the Room Is You. And I am in the process right now, I've written, in order to write a book you have to write a proposal and then you sell the book based on the proposal so i actually have a lot of writing ahead of me in the next couple of months and i'm meeting with my editor on friday to kind of go over the the brass tacks about what the book is going to look like but it will be a lot it'll be written in the same voice as my first book certainly um it's just sort of more of what i've learned what i saw through covid and really tackle the issue of confidence which was something that you know during those master classes i would ask people questions about like. Did they like sales? Did they not like sales? Did they like networking? Did they not like in every, like out of 92 out of a hundred questionnaires that I sent out the word confidence was mentioned. I lack confidence therefore I hate selling. I don't have any confidence as a public speaker therefore I never want to get on stage. And so it really just like the most powerful woman in the room is you made me want to dive in and tackle that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so the first chapter opens up really in the middle of my book tour where I I won't give it all away but let's just say that my first book tour moment in San Francisco was not everything I hoped and talked about. <laughs> sort of like, when, when the chips are down, what do you do? And how do you rebound when everything looks really, really dark? Um, yeah. And so that's how I sort of started off. And then hopefully it'll be you know, the international trips that I took during the book tour and all of these different moments where confidence was constantly you know, hit time and time again and how you rebound from that and tools to give everyone else to do that too.
1: Yeah, that's a good word. Okay, well, I've opened it up for questions, but while people are either chatting or raising their hand um, or have a question, let me ask you our favorite question, which is, why did you say yes to The Wealth Editor? We're so grateful that you did. So so tell us why you said
0: yes to our little community. Well, to be honest, I say yes to everything. The <laughs> right. like answer is always yes. Um, mm-hmm. I've, never, I've never looked back on any opportunity and thought to myself, I really shouldn't have done that. I think mm-hmm. that every opportunity to speak or to get to know people or anytime, you know, when we're in real life to meet new people is an opportunity to spread my network and really get in front of some cool new people. So that was the reason I said, yes. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, thank you. Well, does anyone have any questions? I see some unmuted lines.
1: Oh, um, I'm just, I realized my computer was closed. Um, I do have a question if you don't mind. Um, I mean, I was wondering sort of about networking and if you have any advice about sort of asking your peers for favors or questions. Like sometimes I think I am always happy to answer someone else's questions and give advice, but I sort of stop myself and have trouble or confidence, I guess, asking other people for advice when I'm starting something. Cause I just know how busy we all are and how much we all have going on that I sort of, I guess lack the confidence to bother people that I know. And I don't, I know how busy we are. I don't want to mess up
0: someone's day by asking for a favor. I feel like that is such a, that is like, first of all, so Southern and such a woman, like both of those things. I would tell you that people really love to help other people. That is what I have realized and and known my whole life, but I do feel like that is the truth. So don't ever worry about asking somebody for help because the bottom line is they always have the ability to say no. You know, I say on Instagram to people all the time, I'm like, you don't like what I'm saying, then beauty is you can unfollow me. Like you don't have to ever see any of this again. Same as my book, like you can throw my book in the trash and it does not matter because the bottom line is like, this is my truth and I'm living my truth. And this is the only thing I can tell you. So I would say to you in a network, especially if they're friends of yours, they would never in a million years not wanna help you. And so ask the question, no one ever gives you a permission slip to do anything you wanna do in life. So let this be your hot pink permission slip to just do whatever you want. That's what I say to people all the time. Like, here you go, it's all you, Um, but yeah. And I do know, I look, we've all been there but I will also say sometimes the answer is gonna be no and you're not gonna die. From that you know i love the quote like you've survived 100 percent of your bad days thus far like just keep going right
1: that's what we yeah we that's a great question because we see that we see failure as being very temporary we've certainly had like a lot of many failures at the um wealth edit but we're still here and growing and getting better every day and so yeah. um i think that that's so true okay
0: we have I, actually just one more point on that too yeah. like the crazy thing that you also don't realize is is like the older you get and the more successful you get, the stakes get so much higher. So the opportunities to fail get so much bigger Mm -hmm. and that's only proof of you're doing the right thing. So, you know, when you have a spectacular miss or a spectacular fail, it's okay. It means you actually are really putting yourself out there. You know, if you're having all these like teeny weeny failures, like whatever, who cares? <laughs> have one great big fail. And then, you know, you made it.
1: <laughs> we're going to be thinking about it like that from here on out. Anytime we have a fail, we're going to be like,
0: oh, it's good. That means Failed. we did better.
1: Yes. We did it. Um, okay. Kiana asked, how did you get
0: confidence to write a book? Well, it's so funny that you say that because I actually never wrote anything. And then I told the New York Times in a a day in the life piece that I was writing a book. So that's how it all started. Um, I told the New York Times that I was writing a book called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You and then publisher bought the book based on like a one chapter that I wrote basically like a month. And my best friend's agent, who wasn't even really my agent at the time, agreed to represent me if anyone decided to buy this book. But the crazy thing about timing was the New York Times piece came out two weeks after the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke in the New York Times. and you know, I I like to say like in the beginning of 2017, I mean, nobody cared about women's rights. Like, honestly, we all all wished at that point that people were really gung-ho about women, but like nobody cared. Mm -hmm. And if I had written that book and it had sold earlier in the year, it would never have sold. Actually, if I'd written that book, no one would have bought it. But two weeks after Harvey Weinstein, Me Too started and every single person wanted a book about a strong, powerful woman and guess what I just happened to be writing an entire chapter of this book. So that worked out really well. And then I had the confidence to write it because I was paid to do it and I didn't have a choice. (laughs) And I wrote the whole thing in three months, start to finish. So that should give you the motivation. If you want to write a book, just sit down and start writing because Honestly, you never know what the market's gonna be like. And it really is an incredible, incredible thing to do, to write a book and put your name on it and put it out there. And as I said, like some people love it, some people don't, it's my truth and it is what it is. So that's the best I can do. And now I get to write a second one, which is really exciting.
1: And is it with your same publisher or a different one? Same one? Sure, yeah,
0: really exciting.
1: That's so neat. Okay, well, I think, oh, aside from your, book, what is your favorite book? Erin, that's a great question.
0: My gosh, I have so many favorite books. I am a voracious reader. Um, I think East of Eden has always been one of those books that I've fallen back to a million times and will read over and over again. But honestly, I think that my favorite books are my childhood books. I don't know why. Maybe I had more of an imagination at that point. but. It's just like, I remember reading like The Faraway Tree. Um, I remember reading all the Nancy Drew books. I would never fall asleep until late and my parents put me to bed at about 6.30 at night. And so I would just read an entire book pretty much every single night. And I remember even when I was writing my book, my editor said, she was like, how did you learn to be a writer? And I said, you know, I don't think I ever learned to be a writer. I just read so much as a child that I understood what a story arc looked like you know, I understand how to tell a good story because I've read so many stories over the course of my life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a, like a bedside full of books right now and I read them so quickly half the time. I can't even tell you who the author was or the name of them, but if you give me a really good book. I'll, I'll tear through it in a day or two.
1: That's awesome. Well, good. Well, thank you so much. We're just so grateful and we hope you'll join us again sometime.
0: Absolutely. You guys, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to meet those of you whose faces I can see. And for those of you who've listened and are probably multitasking as women do, um, thank you for joining today. Yes, Thank you. Bye. New York noise to send you on your way. (laughs) (laughs) Bye you guys.
1: We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you want to learn more about our website, please check us out at www.wealthedit.com. The Wealth
0: Edit is an online membership-based community for women looking to confidently discuss and expand their knowledge of personal finance. Our community provides a space for women of all ages to
1: gather, learn, and plan their financial journey through virtual courses, weekly guest speakers, and educational content.